Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I'm your host for episode 20 on June 4th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Steve Johnson, who is the Director of Government Affairs and Industry Relations for PHI Air Medical, who will be talking about EMS and air medical education. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 19, and cover some recent air medical transport news. I received several items of feedback. The first is an email from Justin Hunter, who is a flight paramedic with Aravac Life Team. I will read parts of it as it was a long email. Let me start off by letting you know that I am a big fan of your podcast. I've listened to them all and have tried to spread the word, he said. Thank you, Justin. It is interesting when I compile all the downloads each month, and like Justin, many of you are going back and downloading all the episodes, which is wonderful. Since starting the podcast in December 2009, all the episodes have been downloaded in each of the months. He goes on to provide some observations. As I am sure you have heard from others, your show sounds very robotic. Without any tone to your voice, it is very hard for a listener to get your full point of of the topic. It sounds very much like the entire show is read from a script, or at least you anyway, and not the guests. I have received some similar feedback, and I'm working on my presentation skills by reading some sound recording books, and especially during the news section, I have cut down the stories into smaller bits. What I have learned is that sound reporting is much different than print reporting. I hope everyone is seeing some improvement in this area, and will continue to work on it. Justin continues, My real beef is that the show's lack of subjective matter. There is nothing on your show that cannot be learned from reading an article of news on a website. From the looks of your credentials, I am sure that you have strong opinions about many of the topics you mentioned during your news brief. There are some very serious topics that deal with air medical transport, and your podcast seems like the only place to get these matters out into the great wide open. In my email to Justin, I told him there were many individuals in our community that keep up with the news, but I know not everyone does. I have some fairly elaborate searches to obtain information, and each episode I have to pare them back to just what I feel is important. I have found that there is a lot more going on in our field than most of us even realize. So yes, some of my news may be repetitive from what you have heard from other sources, but my bet is that there are at least one or two stories that you did not know about unless you were following Air Medical Today 
uh, on Twitter or Facebook, uh, and that's fairly religiously each day. He says that I do have some subjective matter, however, but it is all about social networking and website design structure. I'm not saying don't talk about it, but to an outsider, it seems like your show is more about Facebook pages and website than it is about air medical industry as a whole. Justin, I am guilty of this and will try to keep technology to a minimum, but at least two of my interviews, including the Air Medical Memorial and EMS Flight Crew, the programs were actually built on social or what I like to call new media. I understand that being the geek I am, I do have a tendency to go there and that I like to understand some of the details or inner workings of their pages, but that not all listeners may be interested in that. I, too, have built Air Medical Today using new media, so it is a revolution that is changing the way we all get information. Justin uh, goes on. Your podcast has the potential to really help the AirMed industry, and it is constantly being held back by your lack of attempts to talk about the real issues. Your guests seem to be somewhat influential people in the industry, so why not let the people of the world hear what the top AirMed minds have to say? The majority of your listeners are firemen, EMTs, paramedics, flight crews, nurses, students, law enforcement, and emergency physicians. They want to hear about the issues. They want to hear your point of view and your guest's point of view. They want to hear about different technologies and helicopters, two inches versus one, two pilots versus one. They want to hear about the close calls and how they helped other crews. They want to hear about Dr. Bledsoe's studies. They want opinions and controversy, plain and simple. Well, this is a tough one, as I have struggled with this, especially in interjecting my own points of view. I guess my purpose in creating Air Medical Today was to have a place not only for news and information, but one that we can all learn from by talking to the individuals that are in our great air medical community. This includes learning how or why a program or association came into being, or just hearing someone in their own voice explain their topical area. I believe if you talk to those who I have interviewed, they will all say that I am fair and that I am not out to expose or surprise someone during an interview. On the other hand, when it is merited, I do ask some pretty tough questions. Please go back and listen to the Aravac Life Team interview in Episode 4, for example. But again, I am part of the air medical community, and while I am not trying to fluff over things by any means, attacking or creating controversy for controversy's sake is not what I am about, nor what, nor the type of show I wanted to create. Additionally, not all the subjects are controversial, or if I have someone on the show for one topic, I don't like to change the subject onto something else to make it controversial. I have interjected some of my own opinions and have even looked at having an editorial piece, so I'm still a bit undecided about this. Stay tuned. Thanks for the honest comments, Justin, and I do hope you uh, continue to listen and get others to also. Ken Williams, who has called in in the past, also left a message on the phone line. Hi, Ken Lawson is calling again. It's a suggestion for you. I know you do some historical pieces once in a while. It might be worth uh, doing an interview with Dr. David Lamb um, about a French pioneer for the field, probably the first flight nurse in the world, and the person that designed the first fixed-winger ambulance back in 1912, I believe it was, by the name of Marie Marvinkt, I think is how you pronounce it, the French uh, French lady. 
know, he's, he's sort of the expert on it. He's been doing all the research on it, and I think it would make a very interesting story, one that's not really all that well covered in any of the textbooks uh, over here, probably because most of the information is in French, and as Americans, we tend to be somewhat uh, unilingual. Just a thought. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Ken. I'm always looking for good topics, and we'll follow up with Dr. Lamb on this subject matter for a future show. There was a past suggestion on doing a podcast on military air medical delivery from First Lieutenant Robert Fabich, and I am happy to report that there will be a podcast this month on that topic. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file or note to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have any suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email or call me if it is not. I am always on the lookout for all the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook, so it is easier for others to find you. Those of you on Facebook know that they just recently updated their security settings after much criticism and from threats from dropping the service by many on May 31st. I am personally still not happy with these settings, but it is a start. There have been several articles printed on how to adjust your settings, so do spend some time on this, as it is very important in protecting your individual privacy. Because Air Medical Today and some other areas I am interested in have Facebook fan pages, I will continue to participate with the service. As I said the last episode, the sponsorship page is up, and you can get to it by going to airmedtoday.com sponsorship or by following the link on the homepage. I'm looking for both corporate and individual sponsors and will be sending out information to companies and individuals in our community to solicit support. To continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I will need financial support. So if you can become a sponsor, your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. I will also be featuring corporate sponsors in future podcasts. Unfortunately, as all of us know, the big news is that we had another crash in the air medical community. Two crew members on a CareFlight helicopter were killed this past Wednesday afternoon in a crash in Midlothian, Texas. The crash happened just after 2 p.m. Central Daylight Time. The crew were 23-year-old mechanic Stephen Thomas Dooler of Dallas and 44-year-old pilot Guy Del Giadice of Keller, Texas. The helicopter, a Bell 222, was on a maintenance flight out of Grand Prairie Municipal Airport, which is about 24 miles north of the crash scene. Though it has not been officially confirmed as the cause of the crash, it appears as though the main rotor became detached from the aircraft and likely cut off the tail section of the helicopter, which fell to the ground relatively intact. A source close to the investigation confirmed that the helicopter was in maintenance for an issue related specifically to the main rotor. Jim Schwartz, CEO of CareFlight, would not speculate on whether in fact it was a retaining bolt or not, or whether the failure occurred somewhere else in the powertrain. Mechanics for CareFlight had worked on the rotor system just before the flight and had replaced key components. 
the helicopter burst into flames after crashing. Television video showed the smoldering wreckage with the helicopter's blade a short distance from the wreckage. It had been flying at 1,300 feet above sea level before it crashed. NTSB air safety investigator Tom Latson says that wreckage was discovered in three distinct pieces, the fuselage, the main rotor assembly, and the tail boom. The main rotor was separated from the fuselage by 100 yards. Midlothian police told CBS 11 News that the tail section came loose before the crash. The company had grounded all flights Wednesday night and resumed them at 7 a.m. Thursday. The service's other two Bell 222U's will be grounded until the cause of the crash is determined, but their four Augusta 109 helicopters will continue operating. This is the fourth CareFlight helicopter that has crashed in North Texas since 1996, but the first time that anyone has been killed in the crash. CareFlight owns a fleet of nine helicopters and one airplane that operate in a 150-mile radius around North Texas. OmniFlight helicopters had owned and used the aircraft since 2001 before selling it to CareFlight in March of this year. The Federal Aviation Administration, a team of 10 from the National Transportation Safety Board and the Midlothian Police Department are all investigating the crash. CareFlight employees have set up a fund for the families of the men who died. If anyone wishes to donate, they can do so via the CareFlight website at www.careflite.org. On behalf of the entire air medical community, our thoughts and prayers are with the CareFlight team and their families during this very difficult time. In healthcare reform news, a forthcoming temporary high-risk pool for the uninsured with pre-existing health conditions could quickly go over budget, according to a new analysis. The $5 billion program, expected to launch as early as July, is part of the new health reform law. Its purpose is to extend temporary coverage to the uninsured until 2014, when the health plan reforms, subsidies, and insurance exchanges become operational. Between 5.6 million and 7 million people could qualify for coverage through these high-risk pools. This, according to the National Institute of Health Care Reform, a not-for-profit health research group created by the United Auto Workers, Chrysler Group, Ford Motor Company, and General Motors Company. The Institute is affiliated with the Center for Studying Health System Change. But the $5 billion allocated to the program through 2013 would cover as few as 200,000 people annually, according to the report. 29 states and the District of Columbia have agreed to run the programs, while 19 states declined, meaning HHS will administer high-risk pools in those states. In other news, a lawsuit filed on behalf of two children of an Avon, Indiana flight nurse killed in a Decatur County medical helicopter crash has ended in a $5.6 million settlement. Sandra Pearson was killed along with pilot Roger Warren and paramedic and base manager Wade Weston when the rotor came off their Bell 206 Long Ranger before it crashed in a field outside of Bernie, about 40 miles southeast of Indianapolis, in August 2008. 
the National Bank of Indianapolis sued several defendants on behalf of Pearson's estate, but the settlement is with Bell Helicopter Textron, which manufactured the rotor blade. The National Transportation Safety Board found that the flawed main rotor blade had broken apart just after takeoff. The settlement money will be deposited into the trust accounts for Pearson's two children, now 8 and 10, until they are 18. Two youths have been arrested and bailed following a disturbance which happened after a Kent Air Ambulance helicopter responded to a 999 call in Seven Oaks, southeast of London, England. Police were called after the aircraft landed in a field on Sunday afternoon, May 22nd, and said that two people had been seen hanging off the helicopter's tail fin and swinging on the pilot's door. The pilot asked them to stop when they became verbally aggressive, and then one grabbed the pilot around his throat. Kent Police said 19-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of criminal damage and public order offenses, while a 17-year-old boy was arrested on suspicion of common assault and public order offenses. Both were given bail pending further inquiries. The Kent Air Ambulance Service said the incident prevented the helicopter from being used to transport an injured baby who had to be taken to a hospital by road accompanied by the Air Ambulance's crew. The aircraft was unable to return to service until it was given a full inspection by an engineer, which was completed on Monday morning, May 24th. Dr. Joseph Fernando, a licensed physician based in Edmonton, is campaigning against the closure of the Edmonton, Alberta City Center Airport because, he says, the risks to patients are too high. Fernando said the extra flight time into the city by helicopter from the Edmonton International Airport, about 30 minutes in good weather, could mean the difference between life and death. Also, with only one airport in Edmonton, any flights that can't land at the International Airport due to bad weather will have to go an extra 300 kilometers to Calgary. On July 8th, the Edmonton City Council approved a motion to close the city center airport over time, starting with the closure of one of the airport's two runways on August 3rd, 2010. No date has been set for the shutdown of the second runway. On average, the city center airport receives about 1,000 medevac flights from the Northwest Territory, and about 100 of those are emergency flights. Located just six miles from the state line, Erlanger Medical Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee, is the closest level one trauma center for thousands of critically injured patients in Northwest Georgia and account for 30% of its trauma patients. No one denies the public Tennessee hospital helped save many Georgia lives, but some are questioning why the Georgia General Assembly has set aside $600,000 in next year's state budget to subsidize one of the Erlanger emergency medical helicopters. The current Erlanger helicopter stationed in Georgia is staffed by a Georgia crew at no charge to Georgia taxpayers. After objections from the state Senate, House members negotiated a last-minute April 29th save-for-a-budget appropriation of $600,000 to pay for a second Erlanger helicopter in North Georgia. The hospital says it will be based in northeast Georgia around Rabin and Habersham counties. Erlanger claims it needs the Georgia taxpayer money to make the second helicopter possible. Air Methods, who already 
operates several medical helicopters in North Georgia, disagrees and were upset that Georgia is not putting out bids for the new service to let private helicopter companies compete with Erlanger. Governor Sonny Perdue, who is aware of the controversy, has until June 8th to approve the 2011 state budget passed by the legislature. He also has the line item veto and can cut out individual expenditures. Officials from Flight for Life in Illinois and Wisconsin will investigate why they could not promptly get flight approval from the Federal Aviation Administration last Friday, May 28th, to help a four-year-old Oakwood Hills boy who had fallen out of a second-story window. The incident coincided with temporary flight restrictions prompted by President Obama's Memorial Day holiday weekend trip to Chicago. When a Flight for Life pilot repeatedly called an FAA number to get permission to travel, the line was busy. Flight for Life spokeswoman Tammy Chapman said late Friday night. Eventually, firefighters with the Cary Fire Protection District drove the boy, who suffered a cut lip and possible head injuries, but was expected to survive, to the Flight for Life hangar at the Centegra Northern Illinois Medical Center. By that time, the organization had the FAA's permission to fly and flew the boy to Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge. The presidential flight restriction zone extends about 30 nautical miles from O'Hare International Airport. It started Friday and lasted through 5.30 p.m. Central Daylight Time on Monday, May 31st. I'm not sure if this is a problem in other areas that the president travels, but I would hope there is a standard operating procedure for air medical flights uh, with alternate phone numbers available, because it seems odd that that this would happen, and we haven't at least heard about this in other cases. Wolfgang Peter Evans, a PHI pilot formerly based in Bryan, Texas, with AirMed 12, has been relieved of his duties following an arrest on May 20th for possession of a controlled substance. Seized were several computers, a small amount of drugs, and a vial of mercury. After posting a $10,000 bond, Evans was released from jail. The town of St. Anthony, the local chamber of commerce, and a community group have launched a court challenge to try to keep the air ambulance based in St. Anthony, Newfoundland, Canada. As Air Medical Today has been reporting, in March the province announced it was moving the ambulance to Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador, and has since said the transfer will happen on May 30th. That led to protests in both St. Anthony and St. John's. The provincial liberals have also challenged the government on the move a number of times in the House of Assembly. The lawsuit is based on a 1981 document which transfers health services and infrastructure, including two air ambulances, from the International Grenfell Association and Grenfell Regional Health Services to the province. The complainants allege that if the government now takes the air ambulance away, then what they are really doing is stripping some of the benefits from this agreement. The decision on their application, which was argued in the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador a week ago Friday, was brought down by Justice William Goodridge Monday afternoon, May 31st. The judge said the application failed two of the three legal tests it needed to meet in order for the injunction to be granted. While Goodrich said the balance of inconvenience favored the residents, 
he ruled the alleged breach of contract was not a justifiable issue for them to argue, and the decision to relocate the service to Happy Valley Goose Bay would not cause irreputable harm since the decision could still be reversed when the matter is dealt with more completely at the trial. Even though a date for a more detailed court challenge has been set for June 25th, Health Minister Jerome Kennedy said the transfer will now proceed. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Newfoundland and Labrador's opposition liberals say newly obtained documents prove a consultant's report was a sham. We'll keep following that one. Airplanes flying in major U.S. airspace must broadcast their position using satellite-based automatic dependent surveillance broadcast system, or ADSB, by 2020, the Federal Aviation Administration announced this past Thursday. The system required under the Next Generation Air Transportation System will give controllers and pilots better information about the location of aircraft, bed weather, and terrain, the agency said. In addition to allowing aircraft to be controlled and monitored with greater precision and accuracy, the system will let pilots see the location of other aircraft in the sky around them, know where they are in relation to bad weather and terrain, and get such information as temporary flight restrictions, the FAA noted. The agency already is broadcasting information to aircraft equipped with ADSB in the Gulf of Mexico, South Florida, and in the airspace above Louisville, Philadelphia, and Juneau, Alaska, and plans to finish a nationwide rollout of ADSB ground stations in 2013. The Federal Aviation Administration on May 26 awarded next-generation air transportation system demonstration contracts totaling up to $4.4 billion over 10 years to Boeing, General Dynamics, and ITT. The contracts call for the three companies to conduct large-scale demonstrations, including the use of aircraft as flying laboratories, to see how next-generation concepts, procedures, and technologies can be integrated into the current system. The FAA said it will work with these companies to develop and demonstrate new procedures that add a time element to the current three-dimensional profile of an aircraft's latitude, longitude, and altitude. It says the contracts also include the development and rollout of modernized weather services. PHI Air Medical announced a community-wide educational campaign to elevate the awareness of strokes. With this past May designated as National Stroke Awareness Month, PHI conducted a broad-based outreach campaign called Every Stroke Counts to help people understand the signs to look for and for the importance of calling 911 immediately. Strokes are the third leading cause of death among adults and the number one cause of adult disability in the nation. The campaign was designed to educate the community as well as remind local caregivers about the signs of stroke. It was also created to reinforce the importance of making fast, life-saving decisions. A new MD-902 Essex Air Ambulance was launched on Tuesday in England. The new aircraft will be making a special appearance at three public events in June, giving people the opportunity to see it up close and personal. Air Methods Corporation announced this week that its first quarter net income was $0.1 million, or $0.01 cents per share, compared to net income of $5 million, or $0.41 cents per share, in the first quarter of 2009. 
The decrease in net income was primarily attributed to lower patient flight volumes associated with increased weather severity and to higher maintenance expenditures, according to the company. Bradley J. Elias, the medical director of Life Flight at Baptist Medical Center in Jacksonville, Florida, has been named the Raymond H. Alexander EMS Medical Director of the Year. The awards are sponsored by the Emergency Medicine Learning and Resource Center and honors a physician who serves as a medical director for a basic life support, advanced life support, or air service, and demonstrates excellence in the areas of quality assurance, improvement, and medical control, as well as the promotion and use of new medical trends and technologies. Dr. Elias and other recipients will receive their awards on Tuesday, June 29th. LifeLight in Norfolk, Nebraska, celebrated their 10th anniversary last week. Since coming to Norfolk, LifeNut, which is a division of Air Methods, has provided air service to more than 3,000 patients. LifeNet built a permanent facility on the Faith Regional Hospital campus, which includes a hangar, two helipads, fueling station, and private quarters for the crew. The anniversary also comes with thoughts of the three-member crew who lost their lives in June of 2002 in a fatal helicopter crash at the Norfolk Airport. The permanent memorial was established outside the LifeNet quarters. Angel MedFlight Worldwide Air Ambulance was presented with the 2010 Business Ethics Award by the Better Business Bureau of Central, Northern, and Western Arizona earlier this month. Angel MedFlight, founded in 2006 by Jeremy Freer, is based in Scottsdale, Arizona. Violent crimes such as assault, murder, and rape are occurring in ever-increasing numbers in healthcare facilities, according to a Sentinel event alert issued by the Joint Commission this week. The organization warned of the dangers to patients, staff, and visitors from violent crime and urged providers to follow 13 steps to avoid such events. For instance, the Joint Commission advised hospitals to take extra security measures in their emergency departments, assess their violence prevention programs, thoroughly pre-screen potential employees, and ensure that procedures for disciplining and firing employees minimize the chance of provoking a violent reaction. The Commission has received 256 reports of in-hospital rape, assault, or homicide since 1995, and the number of reported incidents has jumped significantly in recent years, according to the alert. Underreporting of violent crimes is a persistent problem among hospitals, and the Joint Commission also recommended making such reporting mandatory. Michael J. Wheeler, age 58, of Watertown, New York, passed away unexpectedly Wednesday, May 26, as a result of a helicopter accident in Boxborough, Massachusetts. He was training a woman to become an instructor when their helicopter went down after leaving the Bedford Airport about 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for a local training flight. They were practicing simulated engine failure when they lost power and couldn't get the engines to restart. They tried to land on a road in Boxborough, but the helicopter hit some trees and crashed into the woods. The woman was taken by MedFlight to the University of Massachusetts Memorial Medical Center in Worcester, where she was treated for two broken hips. After his retirement from the Army, Mike worked in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Marshfield, Wisconsin, as an EMS pilot for Air Methods Corporation. He became the chief pilot in 2000 
and was employed as a flight safety inspector for the Federal Aviation Administration in Boston at the time of his death. Funeral service for Mike were held today. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I'm interviewing Steve Johnson, who is the Director of Government Affairs and Industry Relations for PHI Air Medical, who will be talking about EMS and air medical education. Prior to joining PHI, Steve was the Director of Business Development at Clarion Health and was employed previous to that as the Director of the Clarion Critical Care Transport and Lifeline. Lifeline is a transport service for the third largest health system in the United States, and they provide rotor wing, fixed wing, and ground transportation services. Steve first became involved in healthcare through the Skyland Volunteer Fire Service in 1988. His first entry into critical care transport came as a paramedic and communications specialist with Mission Hospitals in Asheville, North Carolina in the early 1990s, eventually serving on several steering committees for the North Carolina Office of EMS, authoring a portion of the EMS instructor curriculum, and helping write the guidelines for critical care transport for the state. He served as chief flight paramedic at the University of North Carolina Hospitals and helped to further develop the critical care ground transport program for the hospital and then worked as a transport nurse and EMS coordinator for Duke Life Flight. In each of these roles, Steve served on several state and national committees involved in shaping EMS education. Education has always been a passion for Steve. He was a full-time EMS faculty member at the AB Tech Community College, teaching in the associate degree and continuing education programs. He also served as the director of the Center for Pre-Hospital Medicine, helping with the first academy program for EMT to paramedic education for the Mecklenburg, North Carolina EMS, which had a 100% pass rate on the North Carolina paramedic exam. Steve also created the Ames Medical Transport Educator Special Interest Group and served on the Ames Education Committee for nearly nine years. He obtained his undergraduate degree from Winston-Salem State University in 2000 and his master's in health sciences and clinical leadership with a minor in instructional technology from Duke University School of Medicine in 2002. Steve lives in Jonesboro, Tennessee, with his fiancée, Katie Lloyd. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Thanks, Ed. I'm excited to uh, be here. I've been enjoying uh, listening to the podcast now for the last several months. Well, thank you. Well, for our listeners, Steve, uh, you know, I'm reaching you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, in the middle of what I can imagine is probably a million boxes with a moving van from... Indianapolis just delivering all your belongings last night. Uh, how are things going with the move? I'm actually coming to you live from a, uh, a sitting on a box. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's actually worked out uh, pretty well. Um, the uh, I think you may know that the purpose for the move and maybe for the listeners uh, moved to the area really to pursue an educational doctoral degree from uh, East Tennessee State University. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. You uh, have moved on with your 
with your education, and uh, I know that's something that you've been uh, very interested in. What exactly is the curriculum? Uh, the program itself is an educational leadership and policy analysis program. It's designed mm-hmm. to create, uh, you know, leaders for, uh, uh, you know, organizational development type uh, situations within an organization or higher education, uh, perhaps at a dean level or provost level. That 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 type of curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it explores several different educational theories and uh, the the research piece of this for the dissertation. Um, still in uh, sort of the investigative stage, but my intent is to do uh, a dissertation that's centered around succession planning and uh, education and how we uh, train new educational leaders for the future. Mm. Is that in identifying people too? How to identify? Uh, basically, it's, uh, you know, talent uh, uh, selection and then, you know, cultivation and, and you know, ongoing processes throughout uh, an organization's lifetime. So I think it creates the the ability to identify a person that would be a good educational leader, but also uh, looking at how to equip them with the tools necessary to make them successful in, in their uh, career endeavor. Yeah. Well, Steve, I know ever since we first met at Duke Life Flight, you've been involved in, in education and specifically EMS education. What has been your core motivation over the years? I mean, when, when back in time did you say this is what I want to do and pursue? I'm not sure where it really happened uh, exactly yet. I had uh, a friend of mine once tell me I had more degrees than a thermometer, but I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> not sure exactly what that meant. But uh, you know, education is something that uh, early on I had a, a history teacher in high school that uh, pulled me aside one day after class. We had to get up in front of the. Uh, you know the the rest of uh, our, you know our, our peers in high school, which is difficult, and uh, deliver a thirty minute uh, presentation on something related to to history. And I don't remember the topic, but I remember the history instructor pulling me aside, and he and he said, "Steve, have you ever considered a career as as a teacher?" And I said, "You know, really, I haven't." At that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and uh, he. He encouraged me to pursue uh, education, and I think really from that point forward, I was I was always interested and motivated to, to uh, teach. And I think the interest in EMS education really came about uh, when I was working on an associate degree in EMS. And uh, the the two uh, gentlemen that were over the EMS program, the curriculum program, uh, encouraged me to start teaching continuing education courses at the, the community college. And I think it just grew from there. Yeah, well, you have... Uh continued that because I know when we first met, you were a flight nurse at um, Duke Life Flight and had come to me with the, an idea, you know, we need to, you know, a sponsor for uh, this regional conference. And I, I think right. and Duke ended up being the sponsor for it. But uh, <laughs> uh, you you did well. You had me, you know, introduce people and stuff. And I go, wow, this is uh, quite good. I mean, you, you put together a very good curriculum and it was all all done there at Duke. And it was for what all the programs in the region. Yeah, at the time, uh, and I don't remember the, I think it was Region 9 for Ames, and uh, the regions have been redivided over the last right. several years, yeah. but uh, uh, at that time, I think it was four or five states, and 
uh, we reached out to a lot of the programs. I think uh, we probably had more representation from Duke, but uh, to to me, just delivering education to the the people in the transport uh, you know community and and uh, the folks that we touch or, or connect with on a daily basis, the EMS services, the hospitals, uh, the communication centers. Uh, to, to me, uh, everything we do, the root of it is, is, is driven around education. You, there has to be some learning exchange or process that occurs. And I think that uh, that really, to me, is what, uh, you know, drives the, the uh, you know, drives or feeds my, you know, the fire in the, in the belly to, to go out and, and help with education and help uh, create better learning opportunities. And, and, of course, EMS or transport education is such a an evolving field too it's really really relatively new you know when you look at it compared to other uh curriculums in healthcare yeah i think uh, you know if you look at medical transport education and, and and think about where it evolved i mean really we're just reaching back to probably you know uh i mean you could probably argue that uh, the vietnam era was the introduction to uh, you know, medical training around helicopters, and, and, and you may find some others that would, would reach back a little deeper than that. But I think that's where most of us look for that foundation of where we are today. And if you build on that and go forward, I mean, we really have had to create our own uh, curriculum, so to speak, and our own learning methodologies. I think in healthcare, we've heard for years, you know, see one, do one, teach one. And uh, for the most part, I think that's how we all learned in, in, in the transport, uh, you know, business. Uh, over the last 30 years or so. And and looking at that, there really hasn't been any one set way of doing things. Uh, there have been several uh, people, and I don't want to begin to name names. I'll leave individuals out. But uh, there have been several people that have, you know, put a lot of good work into developing, uh, you know, uh, resource books and materials and those type things. But uh, the, the history of medical transport education is really quite limited. And uh, over time, I think we've just had to work with each other to, to learn best practices. Mm -hmm. Is there a body of work or curriculum today that would be labeled medical transport education? Uh, you know, I think there are probably several out there, uh, Ed, and, and it depends on probably who you ask. Uh, you know, one of the resources that comes to mind are, um, uh, you know, some of the books and things that Renee Holleran, uh, uh, you know, put together several years ago. And, uh, you know, Jackie Stocking and some others have, have done some work, uh, you know, more recently to build some curricula and models that are out there. Education Committee through Donna York Clark uh, for the Air Medical Association. I mean, there, there are different resources out there. And again, I uh, don't intend to leave anyone out of that list. But I think those are some, some names and places that people may go to, to, you know, look for what they would consider the source document for uh, medical transport education. But, but the truth is, I don't think there really is any one comprehensive, uh, you know, all-encompassing guide or document out there for the, for the, the industry. Steve, how, how much does uh, ground versus air education differ, uh, or does air add on to the ground curriculum? Is, has it developed that way historically? You know, I think uh, just by virtue of the way um, uh, transport education has evolved, I mean, really it started on the ground, and, and uh, you could reach back, you know, to uh, I think Cincinnati was the first uh, ground ambulance, and it was actually a horse-drawn uh, you know, wagon that would transport patients from one part of the city to the hospital. And 
really at that point it was just a means of, of moving someone who was sick or injured from from point A to point B, and and I think it could be, um, you know, presented that that's that's still what we do, but it's become much more sophisticated. Uh, some of the work that was done in the the 60s with the development of the white paper that helped create EMS um, had some guidelines around education and then uh you know one of the i think i would be remiss if i didn't mention the television show emergency for those emergency junkies that are out there the uh that show was very you know very accurate in its portrayal of medical care at the time based on jim page's work with uh the the, uh, producers of the show but uh without digressing too much i guess the, the the short answer to it is uh, you know, the Department of Transportation has created an education curriculum uh, many years ago, and I think we've just borrowed from that in the aeromedical uh, environment and continued to build on it to, to create that specialty care transport uh, body of knowledge. So it's a good blending of ground EMS and probably some hospital-based, uh, you know, ICU emergency department knowledge that came together to create what we have today. And is it more, Steve, the difference between kind of the 911 education to critical care transport, or is there then further differences in the air curriculum? Uh, probably the best answer for that, Ed, is it's just a deeper dive. I think if you mm-hmm. look at, um, uh, you know, the ability to do airway control in the back of an ambulance, uh, there may be some argument that airway is an airway, uh, no matter where you, you know, try to uh, intervene in, in terms of care of the patient. But I do think that we've taken it to a little bit different level, especially in the environment of air. I'll even include, uh, you know, fixed wing with this. If you get into an isolated environment where it's it's not as easy just to to pull over on the side of the road or detour to the to the closest hospital to find more, uh, you know, resources to help you care for the patient, uh, it it does take on a on a little different uh, approach and. Uh, you know, rural EMS settings probably are the the closest ground equivalent, you know, equivalent to what we find in, in the air environment. And, um, I, you know, I think we really just have found that, uh, you know, I think we still need to do some work to, to create a, a fully comprehensive air medical curriculum. There are a lot of programs and, and, and uh, specialty courses out there that have tried to mimic what we need, but I don't think we have that all-inclusive body of, of one resource or one knowledge pool that could, could answer every question as it relates to, to transport education. Are, are there some, just in general, some glaring things that you think are missing? Does it have to do with altitude types of adjustments? or? Um, you know, I don't know if there's anything that, that uh, just blatantly jumps out in front of us uh, in the air medical community or, or critical care transport community that would be missing. I, I think the one piece that probably has uh, maybe been uh, minimized is just the fact that what we do is so specialized. I think we try to equate it to uh, you know, 911 or hospital level care. And while there are some similarities, there are, you know, some differences as well. And um, I think that's probably the one piece that we really haven't gotten our arms around as a, you know, as an industry as much as a community to say that we uh, we are a little bit different in how we care for patients. And uh, specifically what makes us different is just the environment where we practice. And I think altitude is a good example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's let's go back in time and tell our listeners some of the history of medical transport education. You touched on it a little bit, but uh, you know, with the see one, do one, teach one. But you know, 
how far do we have to go back? Is it back to that Cincinnati uh, to look at, you know, these different methodologies that were used? So just explain a little bit of the history. Well, I think we could start with the earth cooled and then paramedics evolved. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and then there was know, a national exam. That, yeah. yeah, something like that. The, uh, you know, I think um, if you look back at the, you know, just the, the history and, and, and going back in time, if you look at methodology, I touched on this a little bit earlier. But I think what we've seen develop or what's occurred over the last 30 years is, is this approach of, of, you know, medical education from day one, even. Uh, you know, if you go back to the uh, period of Socrates and you think about how things were practiced then, we're looking at still that methodology of, you know, see one, do one, teach one. And that still holds true a little bit today, but I think what we're starting to evolve to now is uh, the, the C1 part of that has really kind of skipped, and now we're to the do one phase, and we're starting to move into um, uh, do one as a starting point almost, where we get into these hands-on applications or, or cadaver lab type approaches. Um, and we're seeing that uh, while there still has to be some level of instruction, uh, the first time a person uh, starts an IV isn't necessarily going to be on someone else or, you know, even back in the day it was on your on your classmates in a particular course. I remember, uh, you know, in some of the, the early EMT and paramedic uh, programs, you know, where we would practice procedures on each other. That's, uh, you know, I think while there may still be some of that practice, it's really moving now to uh, more of this hands-on application and cadaver lab approach. And we're starting to see an increased use in uh, human patient simulation um, you know, both internal to agencies and external. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of uh, uh, the medical transport programs have started to uh, take their patient simulators out to the community and train hospitals and EMS services and fire departments on how to do patient care. So, you know, that's that's covering, you know, hundreds of years worth of history in, in you know, three or four minutes. But, um I think that sets a good foundation for for where we've been and, and maybe where we are or where we're going for the future. Okay, and then looking to the future, and I know that's these days. I used to say ten years, you know, when I was doing a lot of strategic planning, and then five, and now it's like, uh, you know, maybe three. But uh, could you, in in the educational area, could you say what you see in the next three to five years? Might be able to give you the next three to five minutes with the way technology is involving, but uh, yeah, the uh, um, you know I think some of the things that we'll start to see at, at, in the future, especially if you look at uh, educational technology trends, not just in medical transport education, but education in general. Uh, I think what we will begin to see are, are uh, some things that will develop related to um, content subscription, and and what I mean by that specifically is looking at. Um, uh, you know, where we may find uh, like ebooks or e textbooks. Uh, textbooks are, you know, somewhat, uh, as much as I, I, I hate to say this, it seems like textbooks are really starting to go away and we're, uh, we're starting to see more, you know, in the way of Kindle and things like that taking its place where you, you read your textbook on a computer screen or read the material from a computer. Uh, but I also think that we will start to see, uh, just like you see with iTunes, there will start to be subscription services where you download uh, medical education, say, to an iPod or, or some type of device like that, and you actually listen to or watch 
uh, the education take place uh, somewhat at your leisure, but uh, you know on your handheld uh, device as you're uh, uh, you know maybe in travel, uh, hopefully not driving, but you know if you're traveling <laughs> on an airplane or something such as that, uh, you'll find that uh, that that becomes a process and um, whereby uh, you know people are learning in a, in a much different environment, and that leads to uh, the concept of containerless education, which is um, uh, it, I think to explain that we have to explain what container education is first, and that's just uh, you know books or courses, uh, you know classroom type settings where you go to an institution and learn. And I think increasingly we're going to see that that there's some shift away from that to uh, these smaller, more autonomous pieces that uh, you know are acquired and maybe reconfigured by an end user. Um, that uh, <clears throat> you know kind of like uh, the way songs have been. Uh, you know, disaggregated from albums uh, in the music world, I think we may see that start to happen with educational content. So in, instead of a whole class with certain things, you take different <clears throat> modules apart. It, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, through social networking or uh, e-learning communities, uh, those type things. But talk about e-learning communities. I mean, is that like where small groups get together and discuss a topic or... I think it's similar to, uh, and it was a model almost that we employed when I, I worked on my master's degree at, at, at Duke. It was a model whereby uh, these smaller cohorts would come together and using technology, they would, uh, and it was much different, you know, t- eight, ten years ago than it is now, but would come together uh, in a learning environment uh, that was sort of a shared format. We used Blackboard um, as a platform there. It's just a learning, uh, e-learning type platform or access platform. And uh, we would log on to that that uh, Blackboard or web-based site and exchange ideas through a, a chat room. And mm-hmm. I think we'll start to see more of that. But with the sophistication of the technology today, you know, chat rooms can include video or the ability to you know draw on screens and create diagrams. Uh, opportunities really are, are endless. I remember in 1995, we uh, I was teaching full time in an EMS program, and and uh, we acquired a device called an Elmo, which is basically just a magnification overhead, and uh, thought it was the neatest thing that I had ever seen, and now the technology just, you know, pales in comparison to what we have today. Yeah, especially with all the uh, different uh, web-based, I mean, you can get a small group together, have a class, discuss something, I mean, even for business purposes, you know, uh, um, you know, have a webinar almost, so are you seeing that used more? Uh, and you actually bring up, uh, you know, the, the next point, which is uh, looking at learning distribution, which, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, learning and learning content are moving, you know, away very quickly from sort of the traditional, uh, uh, cent- uh, you know, centripetal models. And, and, and everything happens, at, you know, where everything was happening at a set location and was controlled at, you know, the institutional or publisher level. It's kind of a top-down approach. I think we're moving more towards these uh, centrifugal models that are, uh, you know, kind of bottom up or learner focused, and, and the the learner begins to control some of the content. and And I think we see some of that uh, through, um, you know, um, sort of these mobile learning or augmented reality and experiential learning processes, or, or you know, so- social learning portals and networks that are out there, you know, through uh, various websites. I don't want to begin to name them. I, I, couldn't even begin to uh, cover all of them, but uh, you know, just a simple search on on learning distribution. If you look at uh, uh, you know 
different platforms that are out there, you know, you're going to start to see that we have uh, greater mobility and greater access. And I think, uh, you know, it's almost created a situation where you could live uh, really anywhere and attain a, a you know, a, a very high high level of education uh, through uh, an online or, or a video linked uh, uh, format. Mm-hmm. It almost, uh, in, in listening to you, Steve, seems like that we're going from, you know, that you are in school, you are there for a defined period of time, you take courses, you pass, and then you move on. And you might, of course, do some continuing education, but it might be episodic to a thing where it's almost a continual educational process that you're involved with um, and that you're constantly being kept up with, you know, newer methodologies, ideas, and exposed to things just because of the, the online nature of things. Uh, if you think about, uh, you know, to, to make it a little more relevant to, to medical transport education, if you think about the, the nature of a lot of the, the transport programs today, uh, we're decentralized. Uh, we sort of created mm-hmm. these hub-and-spoke models. Uh, there's, you know, those those spokes could reach, you know, hundreds of miles from a, a base depending on uh, where the operation, uh, you know, the state where the program operates. And you have to supply education out to those remote sites, and it needs to be consistent, uh, timely, and, and, you know, congruent to, to, to the mission of the program. And we're finding that the best way to reach out and do that in most cases is through this electronic format where we can uh, do a wide range of distribution to a large audience at the same time. Uh, it also creates potentially a, co- a cost-saving measure from bringing personnel in that are off-duty or, or having them relocate to a central site that could be hundreds of miles away to receive their education. I don't think uh, distance education will ever completely replace, uh, you know, all of the education we need to do in transport. Uh, there's certain things like, uh, you know, safety training comes to mind where, you know, egress training uh, is really only able to be accomplished if you're able to put your hands, you know, on the aircraft or the ambulance and, and, and do the exercise. But uh, I think for some of the more didactic type uh, uh, education uh, topics that need to be delivered, it's easy to do that through an electronic format. And uh, the, the cost of electronic, uh, you know, platforms has really decreased, it seems, over the last few years. It may not be as sophisticated, uh, you know, as you would like for it to be, but it would certainly get the job done. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, I remember back, I think this was one of the arguments with, uh, initially with outbasing, is that, you know, the staff was too far away. They needed to be back at the hospital so that they could, you know, get that hands-on education. And I think what you're saying is this helps replace a good percentage of that. I mean, there's still sometimes you have to come back um, and have hands-on training like safety. Yeah, I would agree. I think it, you know, it really depends on, uh, you know, the, the disclaimer that I try to say anytime I, I talk about education is always go back and follow, you know, what your institution's policies or practices are. But right. the, uh, um, I, I think, um, we're definitely in a in a uh, a new curve here or a new uh, era where we're starting to see that uh, there is a, a broader range of acceptance and even programs uh, formal education programs that years ago you know were somewhat shunned for being distance education programs are now starting to be more widely accepted as a way for people to uh, you know achieve a, a a degree right and Steve, I wanted to go off one point you had mentioned um, the use of simulators and how important that is because you go right into do one. Talk about virtual 
patient simulators. What are they exactly used for, and what can and can they not replace with a regular simulator? Sure. If uh, and I think uh, you know there are some different, uh, and maybe it's it's maybe a good starting point is just to talk about uh, you know virtual patient simulations and uh, simulations of virtual patients range from you know full room mannequin based simulation of you know an operating room type situation. To, uh, uh, it could be a desktop simulations of interactive patients and and you know simulation of patients by live actors. So virtual patient simulations are not just um, you know, a, a, a latex mannequin on a on a uh, you know stretcher. It, mm -hmm. there, there's a variety of ways. So, uh, virtual patient simulations also incorporate bringing in you know live patient uh, models, and and medical schools have done this for a number of years. But uh, uh, to to maybe dive a little deeper, you know, simulators represent uh, you know the the real you know medical surgical you know the world that we touch and an emergent world. Uh, but they provide a very safe place where students can experiment without, you know, doing harm to a real patient. And, uh, you know, when a simulated case or procedure, uh, you know, may be used uh, or reused multiple times, a simulator can support a new mode of teaching and learning uh, that to me encourages uh, sort of the individual exploration and mastery of, of a specific skill or, or skill set. Uh, the uh, United States Medical Licensing Examination, uh, the Clinical Skills Examination, uh, has proposed and, and somewhat practices to use interactions between standardized patients and, and examinees to, to simulate uh, a one-on-one -on -one personal encounter between uh, the, the clinician and a patient in a clinical setting. And and I think we're going to continue to see that, that move forward. Uh, Stanford uh, University is one of the places that has really started to, uh, to, to move forward with this. I'm sure there are others, but uh, they have some uh, published research that's out there that could be uh, accessed, and, and they they go into great detail talking about how they use their uh, human patient simulators and, and virtual patient simulation uh, as a way of training their physicians. Mm -hmm. But is there actual like computer based simulation? Uh, there is, um, and as the the technology has evolved, really you can I recall. Uh, probably back in uh, actually, I think when it was uh, I was still working at Duke with you, Ed. The um, uh, went out to the uh, the uh, patient simulation uh, folks there, and we we took the show on the road and did some uh, simulation training out in Sioux City, Iowa. And uh, at the time, I mean, human patient simulation was you know so cutting edge that that you know no one. Everyone was just in awe that we had a, a you know a mannequin that could actually blink and talk and and make noises and by today's standards it wasn't sophisticated at all. Um, you can program human patient simulators today to do a variety of um, uh, you know run a variety of scenarios really with minimal input from the operator. Uh, it can almost walk through a, a complete assessment. I'll use a paramedic student as an example. We, we began to use these a little bit while I was in Charlotte. Um, we would bring a uh, you know paramedic student into a room and, and have the mannequin really interact with the patient almost throughout the, the, the process and uh, with very minimal input from uh, the, the faculty or the, the person running the, the simulator. And uh, it was almost all self-contained and, and these were pre-programmed uh, uh, directives to the mannequin that they knew how to respond in a certain way uh, based on the input from the student. How, what do you think 
Um, and, and I wanted to go a little bit further into that computer simulation because uh, I'm, I'm thinking of complete simulation. You, you don't even have a mannequin. It's just all on the computer. But before we get to that, what do you – how realistic uh, are the mannequins today compared to a real patient from your experience? I mean, what – if there was a percentage that you could attach to it? Um, I don't know if I could put a percentage on it. That's that's a good question. I think, uh, you know, based on my experience, it's hard to replace um, human interaction um, in mm. any given situation because uh, you can make a computer go any, in any direction you want to. You can't always take a human back to the direction you want them to go in clinical care. Yeah. If only it were that simple. But, right. Um, the... Um, uh, you know, I think what we're finding, and maybe a better answer uh, to, to your question is, I think what we're finding is the sophistication level of of human patient simulation is is evolving such that it's the next best thing. I don't think we will ever replace the ability of a, of a student, uh, clinician, whatever you want to call it, to place their hands on a patient and learn from that. Uh, the best learning environment, uh, you know, we... Uh, one of the programs that I worked with, we would take the, the mannequin out to the back of the aircraft and take all the new orientees out to the aircraft and, and make them practice in their, their environment. And I think as much as anything, that's what you need to uh, to simulate with a human patient simulator. Don't just take the student into an, you know, an isolated you know, 12 by 12 room and say, take care of this patient. Now, hopefully they can do it there, but but take the mannequin out to the back of an ambulance or put it in an aircraft, uh, you know, put it in put it in a fixed wing and take those new hires uh, and, and make them practice on that mannequin in that setting. Uh, that will help make the segue over to when there's a real patient on the stretcher. Uh, they know how to perform, at least in the environment. And I think, I think that's probably more key uh, in most cases, uh, is just being comfortable with practicing in, in your your day to day work setting. Yeah, it's a real important point because in an aircraft, I mean, you you might practice one way, but then you get in the aircraft and you don't have access to the patient that way. It's from the opposite side. I mean, that's probably a good example, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I wanted to get at Steve though. Is is there actual simulation so there's no mannequin it's just i'm in a computer-based learning thing and i'm in that i could actually do something simulation wise through the computer and you may be looking at uh, sort of the do-it-yourself model or online learning model and that's that's moving towards uh, some higher education trends um okay. i think if you um uh, you know probably uh if you look back to online learning about a decade ago, the idea of earning, you know, a degree, as we talked about from your home computer, sounded, you know, a little shady and, and, and probably not well respected. But uh, we now have over three and a half million people that are taking online learning courses. And, and for the most part, they do that uh, in the point-click study uh, kind of, you know, mainstream environment. And uh, I'm not sure that I know that there are medical transport programs out there that have moved to some of that format for their orientation, but I don't know that, um, you know, it's been widely accepted uh, where you take someone into a room, turn them loose on a computer with simulation. Uh, even in the, the late 80s, early 90s, there were computer-based models where you could sit down and work through care of a patient on a, on a computer screen. Uh, and if you did certain things or didn't do certain things, it would score you in a, in a different direction. 
Yeah, I think and that's... I, yeah, I, and I didn't mean to dwell on that. I was just curious if that has, you know, been an area that's developed too. Um, let, let's talk about some of the... You, you mentioned higher education and, you know, on this online stuff, many of the large universities now are actually doing a lot of their um, classes online. What, what are the trends? What, what has higher education adopted I think if you look at, um, you know, distributed education, uh, you know, education has been relatively slow to push, you know, the easy to use mechanisms uh, uh, for production and distribution down to, to individual users. Uh, I think, you know, in the coming years, we'll see that uh, professors and students and, and, you know, this is probably moving away a little bit from transport education and more just education globally, but but uh, professors and students, uh, you know, will finally start to gain access to these, uh, you know, more cohesive suites of tools that will enable them to produce and distribute their own content that are going to be par, you know, with some of the major publishers in terms of, uh, you know, quality and, and uh, specifically for electronic materials. Um, if you really look at, uh, you know, the higher higher education trends and I think we'll start to see this hopefully move its way into medical transport education over the you know the next uh, few months to years uh, more online learning higher technology classrooms and, and really what we're looking at here is um, uh, you know we're starting to see uh, you know twittering and and almost every uh, everyone has a laptop now and, and can access you know podcast lessons you know much like what we're doing here and uh, mobile applications for studying so I, I think we're going to start to see you know the days of pen and paper lecturing or testing are going to start to move by the wayside they already have to some extent the, the uh, NCLEX exam for nursing uh, was paper-based um, you know, uh, not all that long ago, and now it's in completely electronic format. Uh, I think we're going to start to see that social media uh, will will move in to more of what we do. We'll start to take more of what we do from um, those formats and, and begin to learn from that. And it creates a, a medium really whereby we can exchange information more quickly. Um, uh, we can push out uh, new technologies and new learning methodologies, new clinical procedures, um, safety technology out uh, via social media uh, and have access to it much more readily than we could in years past. And I think we're going to start to see, you know, textbooks will be changing or even phasing out over time. Uh, I do some teaching at the Medical Transport Leadership Institute and I teach uh, a section on uh, uh, management information systems and, and information technology and an interesting statistic that, that came out of uh, preparing for, for teaching that uh, particular course at MTLI is that uh, paper use has increased by 13% since we've entered the paperless age. <laughs> yeah, we just keep printing out stuff, right? Yeah, well, instead of reading what's on the screen, we print it out and, and read it there. Yeah, well, it. I think with the the iPad, Kindle, I think people are getting away from that too. I I have like you know, I go through all my stuff and I put it in a read file, and it is hard, uh, even with the laptop reading. But uh, you know, I've looked at the iPad. I haven't bought one yet. Uh, but even my parents have uh, Kindles, which uh, they say it's it's great. I mean, they, my mom's reading more books than she used to to read. I'm starting to find that uh, you know, as I'm preparing for uh, starting the doctoral program this fall, uh, they've already sent out some preferred reading and and uh, pre-reading, 
and uh, most of that is in electronic format where you go to a website and, and read the information there. So uh, the universities are starting to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. What, what exactly, you talked about social media. I mean, uh, you're talking about the, the professor and the students all being together in a social media format. I didn't quite catch how you're using that in education. Yeah, I think what we're going to probably see with that uh, Ed, is is a situation, you know, where um, blogs or you know, um, uh, uh, if you look at wikis and that type of thing, I think we're going to start to see more of that. And uh, not to say that uh, you know, Wikipedia is the the, the end all for. Uh, education, but I think we're going to start to see more of that type format where people go out and they they uh, the professors will post to a website, uh, and there creates a, an ability for an exchange through a, a web-based platform outside of class, but also the ability to just reach out to the the other students, uh, you know, people that you would would work with uh, in a formal learning setting, and how that may apply to medical transport education as an example. Uh, let's say that, uh, uh, and not to violate any HIPAA practices or that type thing, but let's say that uh, on a transport, uh, something happened that created the need for a new clinical protocol or practice, uh, you know, just based on best standard practice. This is something that, uh, you know, we have found on this one particular transport. If we did this every time and we could replicate it, it's going to improve patient outcome and improve quality. Um, we could share that or push that out more quickly through, uh, you know, we rely on email to do that now, but if we could uh, use social media to connect that, you know, Twitter that out to, to uh, everyone that works in the organization, you know, that, that here's this new, new technology or there's a new clinical device that we have acquired, uh, go to this website and download the, uh, you know, the information to your iPod and, and, and view the in-service video. You know, it, it it sounds a little, you know, Star Trekish or, you know, futuristic, but I, I think those are some ways that we can begin to use this technology in the future to impact uh, what we do in the transport environment. Mm-hmm. The, the only concern I have, and, and I'm sure what you're talking about is in a more controlled environment, is there's so much stuff put out, you know, because I, I follow a lot of it. And there's also a lot of misinformation, too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and people's opinions and, you know, then that becomes, then that gets retweeted and, you know, you create this huge storm about something that's not even true. Yeah, I think what you have to do there, you know, there's there, there has to be a moderator that uh, can, controls the content and, and directs the push. Um, I think if left to, you know, just individuals to, to manage that, uh, two people can hear the same thing and, and you know, think they understand it completely and go out and do two entirely in different practices or, or procedures. So I think that, that there has to be a moderator or someone that, that creates or becomes the filter uh, of the information, especially if you're using it in that format. So I don't think you can completely replace the need for someone to be that educational chair or lead uh, that, that helps disseminate the information out to the rest of the crew. Uh, I, I just think moderation becomes important, and, and I know, Ed, you can probably uh, maybe even speak to that a little more based on some of the work you've done with moderating other websites and the push of information even through the, the podcast. Right. I mean, I think you've got to uh, – there's just so much. I mean, it's just an avalanche of, of information, and then uh, I mean, we just see it with you know the political arena is, is one area that you see it all the time, that although the, all of a sudden these – 
things get put out there that, you know, I mean, like, you know, Obama's not a citizen or something, you know, I mean, it's just, and it just becomes reality when in fact you have all this proof that it's not. Um, but uh, that's, that's a whole nother area. Uh, but one of the other points I, I had to laugh when you were saying it is, um, you know, our, my children are, you know, twenties, uh, teens, they don't seem to use email. Like we use email, um, you know, it, to to get a hold of them, you almost have to send a text message or, um, uh, you know, a Facebook post <laughs> to right. get a hold of them. <laughs> I, I think my sister was even trying to get a hold of her son who was in college, and she, you know, blasted out, you know, please call home, you know, because <laughs> uh, he won't answer any other uh, method, so. Well, and, and I, you know, to, to, and to that point, I mean, uh, you know, I have a, a Facebook page and, and that's, this is a whole other issue we could get into in terms of education. But um, the uh, I, I think we're going to see that even email is, will become diminished as a learning tool yeah. over time. And we're going to go more to these texts and tweets and, and, and this type process as a learning module for communicating uh, information that's timely and pertinent. Um, we think email is instant access, but really it's become almost a, a second or third tier means of communication for, for immediate contact. Yes. Uh, so I, I think we're going to see that as a trend that evolves in education too, especially as we think about how that applies to to the way we communicate uh, timely information to our, our staff within medical transport. Yeah. Well, the problem, you know, of course, Google Wave had all this hype, uh, and I think they're still trying to to bring it around because it does seem like it has a lot of uh, application, I think, in education, in, in a business environment, and bringing on a new person uh, that can go back and look at the historical pieces on how you got to where you were, um, and then it all goes out to everybody simultaneously. Um, I think they just put that out too soon, and it was very hard to use, but those types of tools, I think, will replace email. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I think it's uh, you know one of the emerging trends for the future. Yeah. Well, Steve, you've been quite active in educational programs over the years and uh, helped start the Medical Transport Educators Special Interest Group, or SIG, uh, with AIMS. Uh, talk about your involvement with uh, the AIMS regional conferences, speaking at AMTC, the AIMS mid-year, clinical mid-year, and now uh, with the Medical Transport Leadership Institute. Sure, I'll, I'll try not to uh, to bore you or anyone that's listening in on this with the the details. But uh, I guess in short, uh, you know, it goes back to one of the comments I made earlier. I've always had this this strong desire and and passion for education, uh, and really just how that comes together and how we exchange knowledge uh, w- with each other, not just in the transport environment, but but you know, in the world uh, overall, and. Um, you know, the, the medical transport educator SIG, when that started, uh, it, it's now somewhat rolled under the Ames Education Committee as, as a, a standing special interest group. But uh, the intent behind starting the, the transport educator special interest group, uh, I don't recall how many years ago, Ed, probably maybe six or seven years ago, was yeah, I, looked, yeah. I looked, looked around the industry and I saw that uh, there really was no one place to go as a think tank 
for those that were involved in transport education. We had an informal network that we had established, but nothing that had really formally defined itself as, as the one place you could go to or a list of educators or, or people that you could go to that were involved in transport education to, to expand your knowledge. So that's really how that started. And, and I think maybe even to back up or digress from that a bit, uh, what I would find is I would go out to, to um, you know, I would submit to, to do these presentations at different places, uh, you know, through Ames or, or either, even other organizations. For a while, I was involved with the Association of Scientific Medical Education in Europe. I had the chance to uh, go over to Europe and travel and teach uh, extensively for about a four or five year period on medical education. And it was a two-way exchange. I learned a lot of what they did in Europe and how we could maybe translate that or use it here and vice versa. But uh, one of the classes that I uh, really liked to teach, one of the presentations I really enjoyed was uh, a session that I had called Reach Out and Teach Someone. And it was all about instructional etiquette in the classroom. And uh, the folks in Europe brought me back a couple of years to, to, to teach that to the different uh, medical faculty uh, in Europe. And I, I don't want to make that sound like I'm saying it to, to brag on the experience, but what I learned from it was, you know, the we're really not that different in how we, we do things, but um, the, the, uh, the methodology really f held true to the see one, do one, teach one. But I think the thing that we all missed out on, and, and everyone agreed with this almost universally anywhere I ever presented, be it at AMTC or, or uh, any Ames conferences of any type, that we never really took the time to step back and look at it from the learner's perspective. Hmm. We went in and we would teach what we knew, but we never put ourselves in the student or the learner's shoes. And we never asked the, the question, you know, we were always asking the question of what's in it for me, but we never asked the question of what's in it for them. And uh, everyone seemed to agree that we had to do a better job of putting ourselves in the learner's shoes versus just assuming that the way we enjoyed teaching or the way we knew how to teach a topic would fit for the individual learner. Uh, and, and without digressing too much, I mean, people learn, you know, primarily one of three ways. They're either, a, you know, a, an auditory learner, which means they, they hear it and they, they retain it. Uh, they see it or they're a kinesthetic learner, which means they put their hands on it and they learn by doing. Uh, more and more in the transport industry, we're learning that most of us are kinesthetic learners. We mm -hmm. learn best by putting our hands on uh, whatever we're doing and learning that way versus seeing it or hearing it. And that's then really guided the change in curriculum. Yeah, and I think that's what's moved us towards, uh, you know, uh, medical simulation. But, right. uh, you know, to, to go back to, to really, I guess, your core question that, uh, you know, the teaching experiences of going to, um, you know, the different, uh, different conferences and teaching with the Medical Transport Leadership Institute, um, specifically at MTLI, we've, we've learned that, uh, you know, over time that uh, we were – presenting a lot of information primarily in a visual, uh, you know, or, or auditory format. You know, they look at a PowerPoint or look at a presentation as we go through and listen to it. But we had to incorporate some hands-on into that, and, and we've started looking at ways to do that more and more over the last few years. That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, when you were talking or remembering back, as you've roped me into different things over the years, I remember <laughs> the uh, Ames mid-year we did a talk and i'm trying to remember how long that ago it was on technology uh in ems um and 
I remember I did a piece on WiMAX, and everybody was looking at right. me like, what the heck? You talk, what is that? Uh, I think there was even some feedback. Why are we wasting our time? And I'm laughing because tomorrow, you know, the first phone uh, goes, you know, off with uh, Sprint's WiMAX, or yep. they, they're calling it 4G now, um, network. And you have to look at what the implications are for that. Yeah, okay, faster downloads, but what's that mean for you know clinical information and education? Because you're now going at speeds that you would get on your home networks everywhere. So. Uh, and I, I remember you made the comment at the time that uh, my uh, PDA it wasn't about <laughs> the uh, wasn't about the size of the PDA. It was how you utilized it. And yeah. uh, I think what we're starting to see. I mean, there's some truth in that. Now we're starting to see technologies become uh, the devices are becoming smaller, and the ability of what that device can do is becoming much greater. And I, I stumbled across that presentation just uh, uh, during the course of this move. I think we did that in 2003, so we're okay. pushing se seven years wow. ago. Yeah. And and looking at that material then compared to where we are now, I'm sure it seemed so cutting edge that, that it may have been lost, but it is the technologies that have evolved and, and that are in use uh, today. Yeah, because yeah, WiMAX was just... That was something people were working on. It wasn't even even around. And I remember people even looking at me funny about it. And that we, we were probably at most on 2G networks and uh, right. and what that means for, for pushing information. Well, Steve, I know uh, you have got to get unpacking. You've got some other things to do. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to share about uh, EMS or transport education? You know, I'll be uh, I'll be interested to see what feedback we receive from this. Ed. I know you get uh, good listener feedback, and and I would be curious to see if there are, you know any any topics out there that maybe we haven't broached or or that we we could have maybe taken a deeper dive or maybe you know maybe not have dived into as deeply. Um, but uh, nothing that I can think of. Just be curious to see what your listener feedback is and if they have thoughts for the future on maybe where we could go with uh, future installments related to medical transport education. And I think that's a good segue because uh, for our listeners, Steve is going to be a regular contributor to the, the podcast on EMS education. So you know, do provide some feedback. If you'd like Steve to address some things, um, we can discuss those in a, in a future podcast. I'm going to have shorter segments um, uh, from the contributors, but I, I felt uh, education deserved a, a complete show. But in the future, we'll maybe take one area and Steve can report on it. So, you know, do give us that feedback. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the podcast. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you and especially about EMS and transport education, as I know how important uh, these topics are for you. Ed, I certainly appreciate the opportunity and uh, I uh, look forward to the uh, future contributions. Take care, Steve. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Please keep the CareFlight team and family members in your thoughts and prayers as they deal with this tragic helicopter crash this past Wednesday. 
Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.